Now, Genesis 45 is uh, kind of the climax, the culmination of a huge section that we've been reading in Genesis, which is the story of Joseph's reunion with his brothers. And of course, we know that Joseph wasn't known by his brothers, uh, but he knew who his brothers were and he knew everything they said when they were speaking in Hebrew, even though he was speaking through an interpreter for them. And one of the things that we can see as we were reading this passage is God has been gracious enough to give us a front row seat to a story where we know information about the story that the characters within the story do not know. And what we must remember when we are thinking about the story of our own lives and the different events that occur within our own lives is we do not get the front row seat to our own lives that we are getting into the lives of Jacob's sons here. And we've got to remember that if you were Judah from last week, you would be thinking right now, this is it. Everything is coming to pieces. I am in big trouble. I'm going to be enslaved. This guy is going to uh, ruin basically my life. And I'm doing this because of Benjamin, because I had to come down here. And how did this all come out against me? Judah, for some reason, has decided to throw himself at the mercy of this man who he will find out is Joseph. And he's about to face one of the biggest twists probably in all of Scripture. He gets to experience, but because we know everything that is coming, we don't quite get to experience that twist. Uh, but we're gonna, I want to try my best to help us really grasp it. So I've got three points for us. My first point is the big reveal. My second point is the great gift. And my third point is the huge surprise. So let's start from verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all, over, over all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. All right, we're going to press pause there. The moment we've all been waiting for, hey? The big reveal to the brothers. We're going to see uh, that moment when the brothers are reunited, not as enemies, but family. Uh, Joseph, we know, has heard the repentance of Judah. He's heard all the things that he's had to say. And we know that he represented all the brothers for all the brothers came. And with one accord, Judah spoke to him and the brothers refused to treat Benjamin like they had done to Joseph so long ago. They would rather die than allow Benjamin to be torn from his father's side. They were willing to take his place in order that uh, Benjamin could go free. And this was an astonishing revelation to Joseph and it broke him. 
He did not expect this. He did not expect his brothers to be changed in this way. He needed no further proof. These men were not the same men who had sold him to slavery so long ago. They were transformed. They were mature. And Joseph couldn't contain himself any longer. He kept up that facade, right? This stern Egyptian ruler. He couldn't do it anymore. The dam was about to burst. And he says, everyone go out from me. And all the servants, including the interpreter who spoke between them, left the room and it is now just Joseph and his brothers. And the brothers at this point are thinking, what on earth is happening? Why is everyone leaving? What is is this guy going to do? Is he going to execute us himself right here, right now? Like you'd be thinking this is not a good sign. And this wasn't just so that Joseph could have some sort of intimate reunion with them. He did not want all of Egypt knowing that his own brothers had sold him into slavery. We know that it was an abomination to the Egyptians even to eat with the Hebrews. He knew that if he could add some extra fuel to the fire, this would be a scandal for all of Egypt to hear. So he has this conversation with them so as not to tarnish their reputation. And for the first time, Joseph speaks Hebrew to his brothers. And he says, I am Joseph. Now what a twist. The brothers may have well collapsed from shock at hearing those words. They're waiting to see if Zaphnath Paneah was going to execute or enslave them. And instead, in the biggest turn of events, they find out that there's their brother Joseph the whole time. This Egyptian looking man who's speaking Egyptian is all of a sudden this Hebrew brother that they had sold into slavery. And Joseph, of course, was broken by the transformation he saw in his brothers. Uh, The dam breaks forth, the emotions gush out, and he weeps so loudly that all the Egyptians can hear. And they're like, what is going on in there? These guys were supposed to be getting punished, and now we hear our Lord weeping. And immediately, Joseph wants news of his father, because what Judah said about his father was basically, his gray hairs are going to go down in sorrow to Sheol. And so Joseph's worried, he's thinking... How long has dad got left? That's not a good thing to hear from Judah. And so he says, how is he? Is he still alive? Is he going to live? Am I going to be able to see him? You must understand that he's saying this to the brothers. He's saying, guys, I'm Joseph. How is dad? How is he going? And the brothers are just like, "Uh," they don't say anything. It literally says they can't even answer him. They're dismayed at his presence. Didn't sink in for the brothers. They weren't amazed. They weren't joyful. They were disturbed. This was distressing for them. The brothers, the brother who they'd sold into slavery, sorry, had the power now to enslave them in return. And any sane, normal, red-blooded man living in the ancient time would want revenge. But Joseph, we have seen so far in the book of Genesis, was not a normal man. What he accomplished was not the accomplishments of a normal man and Who he was, was not the character of a normal man. He had been transformed by God through trial and tribulation. And so instead, Joseph gathers his brothers. He says, come near. And he gathers them close to him. And he explains very simply and forthrightly the situation. He says to them, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, no one would have known that except the brothers. Maybe the uh, Ishmaelite traders, but I don't think they were that concerned about it. There was no way for this man to know that they had sold their brother into slavery. They knew that this was Joseph. Only Joseph could know this. And he says, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God 
sent me before you to preserve life. Joseph forgives his brothers immediately and freely and tells them not to be afraid, not to be angry with themselves or each other because he says, it was God who did this. God who orchestrated this. God was responsible for this. Joseph knows that God is sovereign over all things. That God can use the actions of sinful men and sinful women in order to bring about his salvation. God is fully capable of taking the terrible things that we do and turning a profit on them. He's capable of taking the destruction that we want to wreak in the world and turning them into a net positive for the world. And he explains to them, this famine, guys, that you are now back here in the second year, you think maybe it's kind of going to wrap up after this? It's not wrapping up. We're not even halfway through. We've got five years left to go. It's like what, less than a third of the way through. And God, he was the one who was responsible for sending Joseph to preserve life in this world. But notice the way that Joseph phrases it. Verse 7, he says, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. Very interesting language. See, Joseph believes that God saved Egypt for Israel. That's very interesting, isn't it? That Joseph was sent all the way into Egypt to save the nation of Egypt, but he wasn't there to save Egypt. He was there to save Egypt for Israel. That's very interesting. God decides to, uh, it's, his purpose is not primarily to save Egypt, but to save his own people, to use the evil actions of his brothers to save them. Think about that. If the brothers had not sold Joseph, they may have perished in the famine. That God was going to use their evil actions to turn it into salvation for the very people who just sold him into slavery. God, in His goodness and His infinite grace, used all sorts of people and situations for the ultimate good of His chosen people. And we've got to remember that Israel was God's special concern. And He would be faithful to His promises, even if the brothers tried to destroy them. Four times in this passage, Joseph attributes to God the wonderful salvation that he has brought about. He uses this phrase, God sent me before you. Never once does Joseph take credit for what has occurred here. He never once says, hey, you guys are lucky I saved your butts. He doesn't say anything like that. He recognizes that God is the Lord over his creation and he has a purpose and a plan for everything that occurs. There is nothing that can thwart the plan of God. Nothing can stand in his way. Whether the plotting of these brothers, the action of evil men, or the lustful demands of Potiphar's wife, None of those people could thwart God's plans. Joseph says in verse 8, It was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, the Lord of all his house, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. The biggest reveal in this section is not that Joseph was alive, that the brother they thought they enslaved and was long gone was the ruler of Egypt. The biggest reveal is that God is sovereign over all. To Joseph, in this whole situation, it's God's goodness that speaks the loudest. It's the thing that we should take the greatest note of. It's how God can use all things to bring about His perfect and just will. You can't get to this point in the book of Genesis and not conclude that God has a plan and He's working in salvation for the good of His people. I mean, think about it. We have this slave 
who is now the ruler of the most powerful nation of the world at this time. This is a small matter to God. This is no big deal for God to propel Joseph into the position that he was in. What about you? How do you feel about God's sovereignty? Are you like Joseph? Do you see God's good hand in everything, even the bad things? Can you see like Joseph that God has a great plan and a great purpose and that he will use our suffering and trials for his glory? Or are you like the brothers, fearful, dismayed, disheartened at the sovereignty of God? Worried that at every angle, God is going to come down hard on you. That's what the brothers have been worried about this whole time, right? They keep warning each other, God has done this. He's going to bring it down on you. He's going to pay us back for what we did. But the big reveal of this passage is that we know for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. Even the bad things will work together a weight of glory. Even the bad things and terrible things and dreadful things will get caught up into this amazing story that God is telling. And brothers and sisters, if you love God and you are called by God, you have nothing to fear. All that occurs in your life is the work of grace. And when good comes, it will be rich and overabundant and lavish. And all your past woes and griefs and troubles will be washed away in the sea of God's grace. This leads me to my second point, the great gift. Let's keep reading verse 9. This is Joseph speaking. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin sees, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen, Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. See, Joseph, he knows that this famine is going to get worse. And the best place for his whole family to ride out this famine is going to be in Egypt. 
And so he says to his brothers, he says, you've got to come here. There is plenty of food in Egypt. I'll look after you. The land of Goshen is uh, a great land. We can rest in this land. I will provide for you all. I'll even provide for your children and your children's children and all your households. I will make sure that you're well cared for. It's no small thing to uproot your entire life and move into a foreign land. But Joseph says, I will protect you. And this famine, it will bring you to complete poverty and ruin if you stay in Canaan. So you have to come. He tells them, hurry home and bring my father. And you notice that there's an emphasis on haste because Joseph is worried he'll never see his father again. And he wants his father to come down and see him. Now, you may be thinking, why doesn't Joseph go up to Canaan? Well, Joseph's job, obviously, is a very, very important job in the world at this time. And there's no way he can just bail on that job. Unfortunately, his elderly father is going to have to make the trip down. And he wants all of their community to come and dwell in the land of Goshen. And this was a great plan because they know that the previous patriarchs, we know Abraham, he went down to Egypt when there was a famine in order to get food. We know that uh, Isaac had to go to uh, the Philistines and was with the king Abimelech. And so Jacob and his sons were going to have to do something similar and come down to Egypt and ride out this famine. It was a huge turning point for the Israelites because they were going to receive a huge amount of land, riches and wealth from their brother Joseph. Not only had Joseph completely forgiven his brothers, but that forgiveness has now come into an overabundance of grace. He was going to provide for the men who had enslaved him, who had rejected him and who had sent him to his fates. And unknown to Joseph, he was in this moment foreshadowing Jesus. Because what happens with Jesus when we come to Jesus? We come to him for forgiveness which is given to us freely for all who come in repentance. And then he lavishes blessing and grace upon us. It's the same here. Joseph, until these last few days, had never met his brother Benjamin. Well, properly met his brother Benjamin, I should say. When Joseph was living in Canaan all those years ago, his brother Benjamin was only really a toddler, probably the age of one or two. If you want to think of how old Benjamin was, you can think of uh, my son Calvin. That's probably Benjamin. And uh, for Joseph, he would never really, he'd met him, but he didn't really know him. He, he wasn't grown up. You couldn't really say that you hadn't really known your brother. And for Benjamin, there's no way you would have remembered your full grown man of a brother. There was no way you would have any memories of him. And so finally, they're reunited, these full-blood brothers from the same mother. They reunite and they fall upon each other and weep. And Pharaoh finds out about this and he's stoked. Immediately, he orders that Joseph's whole family come down to Egypt. He's like, you guys all need to come down here. We've got plenty of food provisions. I'll give you uh, all the stuff you need because we have to remember the Egyptians were very thankful to Joseph. Single-handedly, Joseph had rescued their entire nation. And up until this point, they've tried to confer honors and blessings upon him, but there was no real way to uh, pay him back. There was no real way to show their thankfulness in a tangible way. So Pharaoh is like, this is a great opportunity. We can do for Joseph's family what he has done for us. And so they pull together a massive contingent of wagons to take back to Canaan so that every single member of their tribe could come, that nothing would be left behind and they could bring it all down to Goshen. And this was a great gift, an amazing blessing from God to help his people ride out this famine. But remember, the original purpose of this trip 
was for the Israelites to go down to Goshen to ride out the famine. But then the purpose was when the famine has moved on, the Israelites were going to have to move on back to where God had called them to. But as you guys may know, they never leave Egypt after this. They eventually do leave Egypt after a whole series of events in the book of Exodus. But they never return to the promised land. Instead, they get too preoccupied on the gifts that they had received and they forgot the God who had given them. When we are forgiven, like the brothers were, and we receive all the blessings and gifts that Jesus has for us in the church, and in the Bible, and in our spiritual life, we can fig- quickly forget the God who brought us there, the God who called us there, the God who lavished His grace upon us, the God who had forgiven and restored us and so powerfully worked His salvation in us. Always remember that the greatest gift that we can receive from God is not material possessions, it's not friendships, it's not children, it's not our church or even our community, it's God Himself. The most precious thing we have is God. All the other gifts are periphery. There are amazing blessings that we praise God for, these amazing things that we have, but if they overshadow the greatest thing that God has given us, then what use are they? The Israelites would go down into Egypt and get so preoccupied with this amazing land that they were going to get bogged down in it like Lot did in the Jordan Valley. It's going to take an amazing work of God to free his people from Egypt in the same way that an amazing work of God was wrought in the Jordan Valley to rescue Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah. But this story is not necessarily about the Israelites staying in Egypt. We'll get to that spot, spot later. This story is mainly about the reunification of Joseph and his father. And so we're going to keep reading from verse 21. My third point, the huge surprise. The sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the commands of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five change of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away and as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb for he did not believe them. And when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them. And when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So at the beginning of this section, we see that the blessings are still rolling out on the brothers. He gives them provisions and clothing and animals and they get wagons and Joseph gives Benjamin a small fortune which is 300 shekels of silver which is for a shepherd I think 35 years full-time work that's pretty impressive this is a serious blessing to give his younger brother and he warns them guys don't quarrel on the way home you've just found out that your uh, your brother that you sold into slavery is still alive 
They're still afraid. We'll find out later in Genesis that the brothers are still kind of fearful of Joseph. They think at any moment Joseph might just snap and decide, no, I was going to forgive you, but now my vengeance is mine. So they're still kind of worried. He says, guys, don't quarrel on the way home. Don't fight anymore. You guys have won this amazing uh, unity. You have won this peace. You have gone to bat for each other. Don't let this event tear you all apart. And so they all take off to Canaan to fetch their father Jacob and bring their whole clan back to Egypt. Now imagine what it's like for Jacob this whole time. He's impatiently waiting. He's stressed. He's spending many sleepless nights because he's worried for Benjamin. It took basically an arm and a leg from the brothers to get Jacob to even assent to this whole idea. And so the brothers return and every time they seem to return, at least the Jacob, they've got some bizarre story that they're bringing along with them, don't they? They've got some really weird story that doesn't really make any sense. And so this time he notices them coming on the horizon into camp and they're loaded with wagons and provisions. What on earth? He's expecting brothers to be missing on their return journey and instead they're coming with an amazing amount of wealth and he's probably thinking, guys, did you like raid a village on your way down there? Like, what did you do? He's expecting bad news. And he sees all of this coming. He's not going to accept it. He's probably asking himself, what have they done now? What is going on now? I'd like to imagine, this is totally didn't actually happen, but let's imagine that Jacob rushes over them with this disapproving look and he's like, each time you, I don't want to hear it. Tell me the truth. Each time you come down with some bizarre story, next minute you're going to tell me that Joseph's alive and he's the Lord of all Egypt. And the brothers are like, oh, how do we break this to him? You know, that's actually what's happening. Uh, Joseph is still alive, they say, verse 26. And he is ruler over the land of Egypt. And I'm sure in that moment, they're probably thinking to themselves, what has just happened? How has this all occurred? You must understand just how insane this would have sounded coming out of the mouths of Jacob's sons. He doesn't react with joy or surprise. He doesn't believe him. He says, no. That's, that can't be true. His heart grows numb. He's like, you guys are up to some mischief. This is a cruel prank to, per, to play on your elderly father. Do you know how long I have mourned over my son Joseph and you're telling me now that he's alive and the ruler of all Egypt? Good on you. Imagine your, your sons come back and they say, hey, uh, that long lost child that you had, yeah, he's the president of the USA. You'd be like, nah, it's a different name. <laughs> he's a different guy. It's like, no, trust me, his name changed. It's like, you know, they're probably trying to convince him and he's, he's not really buying it. You're telling me that my son, who was torn apart by wild animals, he's come back from the dead and he rules the most powerful nation in the world. Well, we kind of sold him into slavery. You know, he actually was still alive the whole time. You know, this is, this is probably an awkward conversation to be overhearing. But the brothers, they start all from the beginning and they explained, well, we lied about Joseph. We dipped his coat in some goat's blood and we tricked you and we sold him because we were jealous of him. That would have been a hard thing to tell their father. They said, look, this guy, he has to be Joseph. He spoke Hebrew. Like he knew it. It was like a perfect accent. He knew about us selling. Like there's no way this is anyone but our brother. And he wants you to come and meet him. And he wants us all to survive the famine. I mean, this is a crazy story, but what other explanation is there? How could you explain it? If Jacob's sons had stolen all the stuff that was there, why on earth would they want to go back to Egypt to the place from which they'd just stolen all that stuff? 
I mean, how else could the wagons have gotten here? And it's interesting that the wagons are the things that, the, the things that convince him. It says in verse 27, when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father, Jacob, revived. The trip that Jacob feared would cost him the life of his son, Benjamin, had returned the son that he long thought dead. It says here that the spirit, his spirit was revived. The old man suddenly had an energy and a gleam he had not had since he was a young man. He all of a sudden was just full of life again. He believed his sons for the first time in a long time. And he uh, made the resolution, I will see my son again one last time. At last verse, he says, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. And this huge surprise was something that only God could bring about. When you read books like this, you realize there is no such thing as coincidence in this world. It may seem like coincidence. We may not understand them or what God's purposes are for the events, but there is no such thing as coincidence. God is in control and allows every event, every word, every action. God is not beholden to any man, nor restricted by the actions of any man. And what a wonderful thing it is that God is sovereign. This passage shows us why the sovereignty of God is not something out there. Not something mechanical or impersonal, some bizarre God you can't understand. But God is personal and in your face. It's actually quite scary when you consider how intimately involved God is with every little thing. This passage today, hopefully, revives your spirit just like Jacob. It reminds us that God's sovereignty is not to be feared if we are his people, but something to rely on, something to put all our hope and trust in. I'm going to finish today with Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. What a wonderful description of the sovereignty and beauty of God. I hope that you come to understand this for yourself in your own walk with God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we praise you that you know every little thing about us from the hairs on our head to the thoughts that we have, to our desires and our hopes. And Father, although you knew us and you can see the things that are good and reflect your image, but also the things that are wicked and evil and the things that we hide from ourselves and we hide from those around us. Lord, you still decided to love us. And Lord, you still chose to predestine us and call us and justify us and glorify us. And Father, just like this story that we read, you are in control of this world in the exact same way that you were in control in Genesis 45. Lord, you have not changed. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
and your sovereignty goes forth and we know that we can trust in you and that the nations may rage, the people may uh, decide to reject you, but Lord, you in your goodness and in your strength will preserve for yourself a remnant of your people here on earth. And I pray, Lord, that you will indwell all of us by your Holy Spirit, that we would uh, continue on that path to glorification and that through the blood and sacrifice of your son, Jesus, that we would stand firm on that day, knowing that with full confidence we will enter into your kingdom. And so, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. Would you drive this truth home to them? Would they grow to love your sovereignty and to love your control and to love the ways in which you bring about glory and beauty from ashes? We praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.